0: This morning as you came in, uh, hopefully you checked in using the QR code or somebody checked in for you, and somebody may have checked that for you. Now just imagine that instead of asking proof of check-in, we asked you for your income salary as you walked in. Then if you had a large income, uh, we would usher you right up the front, right in the front rows, even up to the platform up here, right with me. Uh, But if your income was low, we were to usher you right up to the back corners of the room. Uh, Then when it came to the Lord's Supper, we would all have a big feast, have a big party up the front here, all while everybody else with a low income just had to go hungry. Uh, That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Coming to church to meet together, to celebrate our Lord's death and resurrection together, only to be divided amongst the haves and the haves nots Well, this is exactly what the Corinthians were doing in the first century church. And this is the problem that Paul is addressing in these verses here today. This was a divided church, wrongly celebrating a uniting meal, which is a serious matter. So this is where we're headed this morning. A divided church, a unifying meal, a serious matter. Now, if you have your Bibles open and glance open to uh, verse 2 of chapter 11, uh, Paul says that he praises the Corinthians for checking in with him, for holding on to the traditions that he gave them. Uh, He's beginning a new section in the letter, looking at what the church should do when they gather together, uh, what's right and proper as they come together to worship in an orderly manner fashion Uh, but the praise for the corinthians ends in verse 17 look with me in the following directives i have no praise for you for your meetings do more harm than good in the first place i hear that when you come together as a church there are divisions among you and to some extent i believe it when the Corinthians were coming together to take part in the Lord's Supper, they were doing more harm than good. Why? Because the church was divided. Now, we've already heard from chapters 1 and 2 of this letter that the church was divided along the lines of leaders. Uh, people wanting to follow Paul or Kephas or Apollos. But here, Paul refers to a different division. He's referring to the division between the rich and the poor, those who have wealth and those who had nothing, those whose society marked out as successful, those whose society marked out as unsuccessful, those who were the haves, those who were the have-nots. He has heard about this from a previous report that was given to him. Uh, Remember, we're only listening into one side of the story here, and he's not happy. The gathering's more harmful than good. Uh, now, what verse 19 is doing here, uh, he says that there have to be divisions among the Corinthians. Uh, this could mean a couple of things. He could be making the point that those who are genuine followers of Jesus will have to eventually bubble up amongst the rabble. Uh, although, in the context, he's talking about divisions among social lines. Uh, Or he could also be making an ironic or a sarcastic comment about the prideful Corinthians, as he has already done in the letter. Uh, The people who had the wealth probably assumed that they had God's approval because they were rich. Uh, The context seems to indicate the second uh, because he doesn't really hold back in the next few verses. But why doesn't he hold back? What's going on here? Well, what's happening was a common event, a common meal in Corinth, where people would gather together, bring their own food, eat together, but were also separated. Those who were in the upper class, who were amongst the wealthy, were brought into the inner room of the house. This is called the triclinium. Those who were not so well-to-do had to eat amongst themselves around the outside of the house. But what was happening with the Corinthian church is that the well-to-do people, the people who are in the inner circle, brought an absolute feast to the meal. They brought a banquet. They devoured their meals. They gorged on their food and even got drunk right in the presence and the onlooking of those who were on the outside, who had nothing, who went hungry, those on the outside, the have-nots, could only arrive famished and watch on as the haves got merry. This was humiliating. This is far from the Lord's Supper. This is far from Jesus' prayer in John 17 when he prays that the church of God would be one. One. But this is what was happening, and this is what has got Paul so worked up. Verse 21, look with me. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Nothing. the wealthy Corinthians acted selfishly. All whilst attempting to celebrate the meal of the one who acted totally unselfishly. This was a divided church, a prideful church, a church that was off the rails, but a church that we need to pay attention to. Uh, We gather here today uh, in person as well as online from all walks of life we all have different backgrounds different stories different abilities and yes different incomes we aren't called to be uniform we don't have to be the same but we're called to be united Because if we are divided, if we hold grudges, if we gossip, if we avoid certain people whilst coming together to celebrate our Lord's grace and mercy towards us, we bring shame on the very thing which brings us together. We mock the cross if we shame other members of Christ's body. Because it's the cross which unites us. It's the gospel which we celebrate and proclaim in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, which is a unifying meal. This isn't a a human-made meal. This is a God-given meal. Uh, Paul isn't just making this up, but he passes on what Jesus gave to his disciples on the night he was betrayed. And the night that Jesus was betrayed was the night of the Passover meal at the meal where the Israelites celebrated their rescue and their redemption of the firstborn sons in the plague of the firstborn, and their rescue from Egypt, where they would recall and bring to mind their rescue, where they would identify themselves as a nation, identify themselves with their ancestors as a whole, and they remembered their benefit from all God's saving work. But on the night he was betrayed, Jesus made the meal all about him. He took the role of the head of the household, takes bread, and verse 24, please look with me, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus' body was given on behalf of us. His perfect, innocent, blameless self given for us to take away our sin. His body was broken so that we can be made whole. And the bread is a palpable, tangible reminder, signal and pointer to the broken body of Christ on the cross. Every time we eat the bread, we remind ourselves of the great and utter graciousness of our King who has brought us into a close relationship, a deep fellowship, a repaired friendship with him for eternity. And we we recall that by faith we have died to sin with Christ. We partake and we participate in his body. Then verse 25, in the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is, this is the cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus' blood was poured out as he was crucified to seal the covenant, to make firm the promises to assure us of our renewed relationship with him. Uh, This is a reference to a promise which we see in Jeremiah chapter 31 uh, to God's people whilst they were in exile. Well, all things seemed hopeless. When all the chips were down, when they were taken away, carted away to a foreign land, and their homes were in smoldering ashes back in Jerusalem. God told them that he would make a new covenant, a new promise with them. He will soften their hearts and give them the ability to love and serve him they will know him they will be his people and he will be their god and then jeremiah 31:34 for i will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more and in jesus death and in the pouring out of himself on the cross all these promises get the big massive tick The sure and certain yes. They find their fulfillment and culmination in Jesus' death. So when we drink the wine, or at least when we recall when we could drink the wine, or when we look forward to when we can drink the wine, we are reminded that God remembers our sins no more. That we are his precious children. That we are a people who are united by this new covenant that we are called to be his for eternity. And so as we eat and drink, we are once again strengthened and propelled out to live as disciples of him. This meal is no ordinary meal. This meal screams at us in big, neon, capital, flashing letters that God loves us that God has served us in the gospel, that God has come running to us and pursued us in Jesus Christ, that Jesus, as we'll hear in the words of communion as we come to celebrate it, that Jesus, by his death on the cross and rising to new life, offered the one true sacrifice for sin and obtained an eternal deliverance for his people. This meal is an amazing gift for us. And we need it. Not because it's somehow magical or it's the means by which we are forgiven or get right with God. No, only Jesus' death does that. But God has given us this meal to constantly remind us of the spiritual realities that we can't see. An outward physical symbol of an inward spiritual grace. Uh, I am a fairly forgetful person, and so back in the day uh, at school, mum would make me lunch, but I would not so infrequently forget it. I would go to school and it would be left on the kitchen counter. So she eventually got so sick of this that she stopped making me lunch and forced me to make it. The thought process being that if I physically made it and touched it and cut it and wrapped it, then I wouldn't forget it. Unfortunately, this didn't quite always work. It was once again left on the kitchen bench all too often. Hopefully, I think my short-term memory has improved. Uh, But similarly, God knows that we are physical people and we are so prone to forgetfulness, especially of the things which we can't see the things that we can't touch. So in his kindness, he has given us a meal to touch, see, and taste the gospel. This meal, the Lord's Supper, is like a mirror reflecting back at us all that we have in Christ. In speaking about this, in speaking about this and baptism, reformer John Calvin writes that since we are creatures who always creep on the ground, cleave to the flesh, And do not think or even conceive of anything spiritual, he condescends to lead himself, even by these earthly elements, and to set before us in the flesh a mirror of spiritual blessings. This is a unifying meal, which tells us who we are. Sinners saved by grace. Made one by grace. So then if we eat and drink and partake as a divided church, it's not the Lord's Supper that we're celebrating. It's something completely different. If we attempt to eat and drink whilst the haves devour food and get drunk and the haves not go hungry then we should watch out. Take heed. Because this is a serious matter. Paul begins to wrap up this logic in, in verse 27. Please look with me. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. In the context of this passage, uh, eating in an unworthy manner is probably referencing eating and drinking when the church is divided and fractured. See, how can one both celebrate the things which unites people together whilst also being so ignorant of the needs of others? Paul says that it's an offence. It makes people guilty. If the Corinthians keep on heading down this path, they've completely missed the point of the whole gospel. So then what's the solution? Well, it's examining ourselves. Uh, The word here, to examine, means to test, to determine genuineness. So this doesn't have to mean a deep introspection or navel-gazing, but it means looking at ourselves afresh through the lens of the gospel knowing that God knows the deepest and inmost desires of our hearts, even the sinful ones, even the crooked ones, and he still loves us. And in this knowledge, confessing that we have done wrong, saying sorry, and committing ourselves to living to him afresh. Uh, One of the great gifts that we have here at St. Bart's is being an Anglican church. And one of the primary reasons why I am Anglican is because of the prayer book. Our services are shaped uh, by people who are a lot smarter than me over the centuries. And so every week, as we gather together, we confess our sins together. Corporately. We examine ourselves. We also frequently celebrate the Lord's Supper using rich biblical words. Which are lifted straight from 1 Corinthians 11. It's an amazing blessing. But this can also be equally dangerous. Sometimes I can become over familiar with the words. And what used to be a great, rich, colourable tapestry of God's grace can become a bland, monotone image because I've become over-familiar. Sometimes it can be tempting just to disengage and think about how awesome the coffee is going to be after church. In short, because sometimes we can become too familiar, we fail to examine ourselves properly. I know that I've certainly done this, and probably will do in the future. But every time we come to gather together, To continually remember God's graciousness towards us. Be refreshed by his word. Nourished by this meal. And we should examine ourselves. Lest we fall into judgment. A serious matter. These next verses from 30 to 32 is probably Paul being more descriptive than prescriptive. He has described how people have become weak, sick, sick and have even died as a result of not discerning themselves. He classifies this as God's judgment. Uh, He isn't necessarily saying that this is what will happen if we do these things, but he's making the point that the Lord's Supper is a serious matter. It's not a small thing. This shouldn't cause us to fear nor should it cause us to put up boundaries for ourselves or even for those younger in the faith because they might not fully comprehend God's grace. After all, who can fully comprehend God's grace? Nor should we take it too casually. But we should come in great confidence in God's love and God's grace, casting aside those things which may distract us. For the Corinthians, the solution was for everybody to eat in their own homes, to have their fill, and come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. For us to not be distracted, it may mean something different. It may mean taking a moment to pause and and reflect as we come to gather together to recall what we are actually doing here. For some of us, it may even mean turning off those things. Which may distract us. Whatever we have to do to keep ourselves from being distracted from God's grace, we should do it. But God's grace is far too amazing and far too glorious to be distracted from. God's grace is far too glorious for us to become over familiar or for us to forget. God's grace is far too precious for us to then go on and hold grudges against God's people. And so we do this. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together in great remembrance of him. In great remembrance and recollection of his grace. Sustained by it. Nourished by it and spurred on to live for his glory in the world, for great things he has done. Uh, American hymn writer Fanny Crosby wrote this in the 1870s To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life as an atonement for sin and open the life gate that all may go in. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest defender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, how we thank you so much for your amazing grace. We thank you so much for your unending love, that you would come for us, that you would die for us, to bring us with you and all your people for all eternity. Lord, please, where there are divisions, please unite us. Please help us to be united around the gospel, to be constantly looking towards you. And Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your graciousness towards us, that you would give us a meal to help us remember you. Lord, please keep us from forgetfulness. Keep us from being over-familiar with this. Lord, continue to help us to be awed, to look in awe and wonder at your amazing grace. And Lord, help us always to give you the glory for great things you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.